Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Josh Wynn, who is a physicist and astronomer at Princeton University. His research goals are to explore the properties of planets around other stars, understand how planets form and evolve, and make progress on the age-old question of whether there are other planets capable of supporting life. His group uses optical telescopes to study exoplanetary systems, especially those in which the star and planet eclipse one another. Welcome, Josh. Hello. Thank you for having me. Sure. Yeah. So I want to use one of your older papers to sort of set the context for our conversation. Uh, and it's entitled The Occurrence and Architecture of Exoplanetary Systems, uh, in which you say the basic geometry of the solar system, the shapes, spacings, and orientations of the planetary orbits has long been a subject of fascination as, long as, in, uh, as well as inspiration for planet formation theories. For exoplanetary systems, those same properties have only recently come to come into focus. So you wrote this paper in 2015, um, and I think there has been a, a lot of exoplanetary um, discoveries, <laughs> I think, right? So sure. what what is the count now? How many exoplanets have we found so far? Um, I think the closest thing to an official count we have uh, has about 4,500 exoplanets. 4,500. And it's all over the place. Um, and in general, there is, uh, I would imagine there's some limitations uh, beyond which we cannot really find them, right? So, yes. uh, so, so could, you, could you sort of set the, uh, set the context for there are, I know that there are two, three different methods uh, by which we find them. Uh, could you describe those? And, and, and what's the, sort of the maximum distance we can target? Sure. To find an exoplanet. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right to begin with the technology because this is a very technology driven field. Yeah. There have been speculations since the ancient Greeks about whether the other stars are like the sun and whether those stars have planets. And that seemed increasingly plausible as the centuries went on and we learned more and more astronomy. But it really wasn't until the mid 90s 
that this field of exoplanet science got going. And that's entirely because of limitations in our ability to perform the measurements. Yeah. And so the measurements are, well, the, the first thing you might think of doing if you want to find a planet going around another star is to use some big telescope and make an image of the star yeah. and then look for the little dots going around the star. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that, yeah. that's a very direct method. And unfortunately, it's also extremely difficult. And it has worked, but only barely in a few cases where you can actually see the planet as a little dot of its own. What's the, what, so what, what's the distance approximately where we can actually actually image a planet? The distance from, from us? From yeah. us, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so how do we reckon distances? We, one way to measure distances is in light years, yeah. distance that, that light travels in a year. And the nearest stars are a few, let's say, four to 10 light years away. Yeah. And most of the exoplanets we know about are within a few thousand light years. And with, with, with uh, more being known closer to us than farther away. And that's again for practical reasons. It's much easier to perform the necessary measurements if you have a bright star and then yeah. a nearby star. So we, we quickly lose the ability to detect planets if they're all the way across the galaxy. You know, we have very little hope of that. We're really exploring our tiny little neighborhood of the galaxy. But even um, even thousand light years, so you, we can actually image a, a planet at that distance. I think the ones that have been imaged are are closer than that. Maybe yeah. maybe fifty to one hundred light years. Although I would I would have to look it up to be sure. Maybe a maybe several hundred. Okay. Um, I don't know if that sounds like a lot or a little to you. To most to, to most ordinary uh, non scientists, it's a tremendous distance. Like it's an almost <laughs> unfathomably mind boggling distance. Yeah. Uh, but to an astronomer, that is that is really next door. You know, we, there are astronomers who study things that are many, many times farther away. Yeah. So, so I was just, you know, sort of looking at the, the finding an image at that distance uh, from an Earth-based uh, Earth-based telescope is really challenging. It is. Yes. Now, the biggest issue is is the sun, is the star itself, right? The star is so bright. That's right. Anything that surrounds it um, becomes very difficult. So. I know that there are some techniques that allows you to actually, um, uh, actually, you know, kind of uh, fade out the light coming from the star to, to actually see the planets. Um, is that possible? Yes. Yeah, so the basic problem is that we cannot focus our images as tightly as we might want. And some of that is baked into the, to the laws of optics. That is uh, this phenomenon called diffraction that whenever you interrupt a light wave with a telescope, say, then the light wave develops curvature. And the result of that is a blurring of the image in your camera. Mm. And so that's kind of an irreducible problem. And it means that if there is a tiny little dot right next to the star, then the blurring of the star will overlap the, the dot from the planet and we won't be able to see it. So one approach is to just make tighter and tighter images. And, and one way to do that is to have larger and larger telescopes because the blurring effect uh, in principle uh, goes down with larger telescopes. 
Another way is to put your telescope in space where it is possible to uh, make sharper images than on the ground because on the ground, in addition to the problems with optics and diffraction, you have the atmosphere, which is right. constantly messing up the paths of light rays and, and causing additional blurring in our images. But then what you alluded to is there are special cameras you can build that manage to zero out the light from a very specific point in the image, which you align with the star, and thereby allow the surrounding area to be searched without the severe problems of the glare from the star. Uh, those instruments are, are very advanced and, and finicky and high tech. Uh, they go, most of them go by the name of a coronagraph because these same kinds of instruments were originally used to image the corona, the outer layers of the sun, by blocking the sun's glare. And they, right. they basically work by putting a carefully designed obstruction, actually two obstructions of different shapes within the light path so as to block the light and direct the light from a star to, to other areas of the instrument and prevent it from reaching the detector. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty of seeing an exoplanet actually revolve around a star in itself is a, is a magnificent thing. Yes. Uh, but we have a couple of other, other techniques to not to see them, but at least to, uh, to, to sort of um, uh, speculate they exist. Yeah, right? to deduce they exist, basically. Did you? Yeah. So, uh, before we leave the topic of, of this imaging yeah. method, though, I want to direct your, your listeners to a particular video that I think every human being should watch. You, you need to look up the name of the star. It's HR8799. It doesn't have a very glamorous name, but on YouTube, <laughs> on YouTube and elsewhere, you will find a movie of four planets as tiny little dots circling around at least a small portion of their orbits around this nearby star. So that has been the greatest yeah. success of this direct imaging method so far. And, and how, how far is it? How far uh, is HR879? Yeah, I will look that up as we speak. Okay. <laughs> but it will, take, it, will, it will take just a moment. It is 130 light years away. 130 light years, okay, yeah. And so just to set context, uh, the, the nearest star or the nearest star that we can see is Alpha, Alpha Centauri. That's right. And Alpha Centauri, in fact, there are three stars in that system. They're all about, yeah. I think it's 4.3 light years away. Just 4.3 light years away. So we have, we have some stars that we can see by naked eye uh, a few light years away. And, and uh, the, the closest one we cannot see because it's too dim, right? Yeah, well, that's the interesting that? thing. When, when you look at the night sky, without a telescope, with just your eyes, you see, I don't know, a thousand or so bright stars, but those are not the nearest stars. What happens is stars have a wide range of brightnesses, of luminosities, and some stars are tens of thousands of times more luminous than the sun. And so you can see those things much farther away than you would be able to see a sun-like star. And in fact, that's what most of the stars in the sky are. They're these over-luminous giant stars. The most common kind of star, like you said, is a tiny little red dwarf star that might have one ten-thousandth of the 
luminosity of the sun. And they're very common. They outnumber sun-like stars, but we can hardly see any with our naked eyes. In fact, I, I'm not, I think there might be a few that we could see the naked eye, but they do not call attention to themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, so HR 8799 is something that people look up on YouTube and elsewhere. Um, and so, so that's one technique um, that was used. Uh, many parameters have to fall in place for that to yes. work. Um, but there are more common uh, methods that you use to identify exoplanets. Right? Yes. In fact, most of the, the great majority of those 4,500 known exoplanets came from yeah. two, two different methods, not imaging. And as you said before, those methods are more indirect. We do not see the planet. We do not receive any light from the planet that we can distinguish, but we track the light from the star as precisely as possible. And we use that and our knowledge of physics to deduce the existence of the planet. And in fact, sometimes we can make a lot of progress. We can even measure the mass and the size of the planet to within a few percent, even though we can't see it. <laughs> Let me explain. So the method that's conceptually the simplest is based on eclipses. When when the moon goes in front of the sun, we get a really dramatic solar eclipse and and the sky goes dark for a little while. Um, But sometimes Venus or Mercury will pass in front of the sun and nothing really happens. You have to be told by an astronomer that it's taking place because you would never notice. And that's because Venus or Mercury only block a small percentage of the sun's light. Yeah. But we are getting really good at monitoring the brightnesses of stars precisely. And so if something like that were to happen to a distant star, we can, we can tell. So that's, that's the idea is that you wait for a planet's orbit to carry it directly in front of the star as viewed from, from our position in the galaxy. And then you mm. notice that the star appears to get slightly fainter. Right. Yeah. To, to make it practical, you need the star to move at some reasonable speed, right? So you have to measure before the star uh, is in front of the, oh, sorry, before the planet is in front of the star and afterward. Right. And so, so the, the orbital, um, uh, orbital durations, I think it's going to be important for that measurement to take. That's right. So if you were looking back at the sun from hundred light years away, from some alien planet with, with telescopes similar to ours, and if you were in just the right place to see the earth cross in front of the sun, what would happen? First of all, it happens once a year. So you have to be monitoring it you know, pretty continuously in order to catch it happening. It only lasts for, I think it's like 10 or 12 hours. And during that event, you would see the sun get fainter by about a hundred parts per million. So a relatively yeah. small amount. So that's the game. You, you look for these short duration dimming events by monitoring hundreds of thousands of stars or as many as you can as precisely and as continuously as possible. Mm. So, so what is sort of the, the distribution, uh, Josh, of that 4,500 I, I don't know if you have it handy, but uh, so so what's the maximum orbital uh, duration we have and what's the minimum? Right. So the methods that we have are best at picking up 
planets that are on very close orbits, very tight orbits around the star with short orbital periods. The period is the time it takes to go all the way around. And so most of the planets we know about have orbital periods shorter than a, f a month or two months. And that's kind of remarkable. We didn't know that such planets would exist. Um, in the solar system, the closest planet to the sun is Mercury. And Mercury takes 88 days to go around. And we, we right. used to think that was pretty close. <laughs> Mercury hot. Right, yeah. Most of the yeah. planets that we have available to study now are much closer to their stars than Mercury is to mm. the sun. Some of them have orbital periods of just a day or, or even, mm. I think the record holder is about five hours. So there are mm. planets that are about as close as it is physically possible to be to their star. Yeah, so these uh, these variables are related, right? So the orbital period, uh, the distance from the star, the star, the mass of the planet, and the mass of the star, they're all, all sort of related. Well, the, the three right? things so, that are linked yeah. are the mass of the yeah. star, the orbital distance yeah. of the planet, and the orbital period of the planet. They are linked, they are linked right. through Kepler's third law. It's one of Kepler's laws of planetary motion. And it basically says that if you're farther away from a star, then the orbital circumference is larger and the orbital speed is also slower because there's less gravitational force pulling on the planet. And both of those things together make the orbital period longer. Right. Okay. Um, so in this, this is called the transit yeah. method, right? Uh, the, the one that, that uh, you described. So, so what happens if there are, you know, sort of multiple planets going around uh, and they, they could sort of um, influence each other, right? So, uh, so, so what will we see if there are, let's say, four different planets in tight orbits? Around so the, around if the, the planets' orbits are very aligned with each other, so they form a flat yeah. system like the solar system, and if we are lucky enough, to be viewing that plane edge on so that we see all the planets go right in front of the star. And what we see is yeah. lots of dimming events. You know, each planet produces dimming events on a different schedule. So our mm -hmm. brightness record will have traces of all of the planets. I, I think the record holder right now has eight of these eclipsing planets. We call them transits because the, the term in astronomy for when a an eclipse is occurring and the body in front is really small compared to the body in back, we call that a transit. Mm, okay. So, um, so, so we, so we have, we know these things exist at least 4,500 of them uh, have been found and named, so to speak, at least by right. numbers. Um, and, and, and technology is advancing. So are we in a position to sort of characterize them, their composition, if they have atmosphere, and and ultimately, you know, one of the questions, nagging questions, still remains to be, if there is there is life out there. Absolutely. So uh, that was a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> Let's try to go through them. So uh, you asked about like, what 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 have we actually learned? What do our methods tell us about each planet? And one thing is the planet's size, and that we can get if the planet is transiting planet from the amount of light that it blocks. The amount of light that it blocks is simply the, 
the size or the area of the planet's silhouette divided by the area of the, the whole star as it appears in the sky. So for example, if it's a sun-like star and we see the brightness go down 100 parts per million, it's gonna be an Earth-sized planet. If it, were to, if it were to go down by 1%, a much larger signal, that would be a giant planet like Jupiter. Now, the next thing we wanna learn is the mass uh, because you, that's kind of the first thing you wanna know about a planet. Is it a, is it, a, it, it tells you the density if you have both of those quantities. It tells you whether you have a rocky planet or a gaseous planet or, or something in between. To get the mass, we have to use the second planet finding technique, the one I haven't described yet. And that's called the Doppler method. And it's based yeah. on the Doppler effect, which uh, some of your listeners might know, some of, them, some of them might not. The Doppler effect is a shift in the wavelength that is observed whenever the source of the waves is moving. So in the world of sound, for example, when an ambulance is, is coming towards you and then zips away from you, you hear, mm. and that's because yeah. as it's coming towards you, the, the sound waves produced by the ambulance are, are compressed and, and shorter wavelength means a higher pitch. And then when the ambulance right. zips away, the waves are stretched to longer sizes and that corresponds to lower pitch. Uh, same thing happens for any type of wave, including light. So when a star is, well, even when an ambulance is coming towards us, the light from the ambulance is, the, the light waves are slightly compressed. And so the ambulance would appear slightly bluer. Shorter wavelengths means bluer for light. And when it's receding, it should look slightly red. We never notice that, of course, and that's because the effect is minuscule. That to the, the fractional change in the wavelengths is the speed of the object divided by the speed of light. And that's usually very, very small. But for stars, they're moving pretty fast sometimes, and we've gotten very good at, at measuring these tiny, tiny shifts in wavelengths. So we can actually tell when a star is moving and how fast. And that's our way in because we, we always say the planet orbits the star, but really it's, it's slightly more complicated. Both the planet and the star orbit the center of mass of a planetary system. So the center of mass is close to, but not right at the center of the star. The center of mass is kind of like the, the average position of all of the atoms in the system. So, yeah, it's, it's typically, I would imagine, given the size of the star, it would be typically inside. Well, the star, right? uh, for the solar system, the center of mass is usually just outside the surface of the oh, sun, but not so far. So it's, it yeah. depends on the masses of the planets and on their orbital distances. Yeah. But it's usually, it's, like, in, like in that case, it's close to the center of the star, but it's not right at the center. And so the sun wobbles around in response to the gravitational pull of all the planets. So it's, it's doing a complicated little dance because all the planets are, are moving around and pulling it in different directions. And that's what gives us our way in because when we see using the Doppler effect that some other star is wobbling around, then if the wobble has the right characteristics, we can deduce there must be a planet or several planets going around and we can measure the orbital periods of those planets. And we can learn 
we can learn the shapes of their orbits, and we can learn if the planet is also a transiting planet, we can learn its mass. All right. Don't you, um, wouldn't you need a, sort of a, an estimate of the, the stars? Yes. Mass? So in, in all of these cases, we can only, we can only learn about the planet to the degree that we know about the star. If, if we, if we're uncertain of the star's mass, we will be equally uncertain of the planet's mass. Yeah. And so how do, how, how do we typically estimate the mass of the yeah, star? Yeah, that's a difficult problem. Uh, the best way we have in astronomy for measuring the mass of anything is to see it move under the influence of gravity. Hmm. Like uh, that's how the, you can measure the mass of the sun, for example, if you watch the planets go around and you measure their orbital distances and periods. But if a star is just sitting there and there's no other star that is pulling it around, we, we, we don't have that way to measure the star's mass. And so we have to make an educated guess based on the appearance of the star, its color, its luminosity, and other observable characteristics. Okay. And so, so that's an estimate. Uh, that gives us sort of an estimate of the, the mass yes. of the planet. Uh, and then um, that should tell us at least approximately what the cost yes, is. Yes, so if we are lucky enough to see transits and to detect the star's motion, we get the mass and size, we can calculate a density, and if it comes out to be five or six grams per cubic centimeter, well, that's just like the Earth. If it comes out to be one gram per cubic centimeter, that's more like Jupiter and Saturn that are mostly made out of hydrogen and helium gas and are much less dense. Now, the interesting thing is that, okay. uh, so we have found planets that have the same density as the Earth, and we've found planets just like Jupiter and Saturn. We've also found planets that are hundreds of times denser than the Earth, and we found planets that are, let me get this right, that are 20 times less dense than Jupiter and Saturn. There's a humongous range well, yeah. of types of planets that we are seeing compared to the sample that we have in the solar system. Hundreds of times denser than the Earth means it's some sort of metallic. Uh, uh, well, it's even beyond that. I think so. As you as you get yeah. th those objects that are so dense are also very massive, and so they're kind of borderline stars. Uh, some people call them brown dwarfs, and the reason that they're so dense is that they're not quite massive enough to ignite nuclear fusion in their centers like stars do. And that means that they don't have that source of heat and pressure that would cause it to expand and become a star. So the only thing that's holding it up are material forces and then this other strange quantum mechanical effect called generacy pressure. Mm. The, the resistance of material to being compressed purely due to the quantum mechanical need for particles not to occupy the same state. So. It's a very strange type of matter that, that is hard, would be hard or impossible to reproduce in a laboratory on the Earth. Mm -hmm. And the third aspect uh, that I think we are getting an increasingly better view is the, is the atmosphere, right? So, so how, do we, how do we understand what might be, if, if it has an atmosphere, first of all, and then if, if it is, 
what the what the cost. Yeah, is. you're right. The remarkable thing is that we can learn anything at all about the planet's atmosphere. We can't see the planet, right? How, yeah. how can we possibly know what's in its atmosphere? And and the trick relies on eclipses. Well, I should say first, in those lucky cases like HR eight seven nine nine, where we have seen separately the star and the planet in an image, we can obtain a spectrum of the planet. That is, we can take the light from the planet, spread it out into thousands of different colors using a prism or a grating, and then analyze the intensity at each color and thereby learn something about the composition of the atmosphere because different atoms and molecules will absorb light at very specific colors. So if we see these dark features in the spectrum of a, of a planet's light, we can, we can deduce what must be in the outer atmosphere of that planet. So, so we'll take a spectrum before the transit, take a spectrum after the transit, and, and sort right. of- So I was talking it. about the directly imaged case where you just take a spectrum of a planet, but you oh, are right okay. that okay. you can perform the same yeah. kind of trick with a transiting planet, even though you can't see the planet, like you said, you perform spectroscopy spanning a transit. And if you see a little bit of extra absorption at specific wavelengths during the transit, you can probably attribute that to absorption as the light passes through the planet's outer atmosphere before proceeding all the way to the Earth. So we, we have little glimpses of the atmospheres of some of these exoplanets in the most favorable cases. Okay, and so of the 4,500 we have, uh, how many of them pass the test, George, in terms of they have to be, you know, sort of at the right distance, sometimes called the habitable zone, so that they can harbor water. Uh, we believe oxygen has to be there for life to, life to thrive. So how many of the 4,500 sort of pass the test for all of those uh, characteristics? Well, it all depends on how strict you want to be. <laughs> we don't exactly know. We, we don't have a theory for life, really. We don't know what are the necessary yeah. conditions or even what are the sufficient conditions. We don't know how life got started here on the earth after all. So we don't know exactly right. what to require to count the planet as habitable or anything like that. So we just have a working definition. Hmm. And the working definition is it's gotta, it's probably gotta have a solid surface. So that rules out yeah. Jupiter-like planets, at least for now. Uh, and it probably hmm. would be good if there were liquid water oceans on the planet's surface. And that's simply because all the life we know of on the Earth involves water in some way or another. We think life got started in the oceans. And so maybe, and, th and there are some theoretical arguments that people have made that water is especially good for creating uh, the hab uh, a haven for complex chemical reaction networks. All that aside, you know, yeah. it's what we have. So maybe we should prioritize planets where liquid water would possibly pool up on the surface. And so that restricts you to a range of, mm -hmm. orbital, of, of temperatures for the surface. It has to be between the freezing and right. boiling points of water. And that in turn restricts us to a certain range of distances from the star. And that's the, the so-called habitable zone. And distance 
distance is a function of the star's characteristic, right? So if you have a, a red dwarf right. or, or something like that, um, so the, the luminosity of the star would, yes. would drive so the So in our solar system, of course, the Earth is in the habitable zone. But if you were to crank up the sun's luminosity by factor of 100, we would have to move 10 times farther out in order to stay at the same temperature. Right. So the habitable zones of luminous stars right. are in wider orbits. Likewise, these really, really common red dwarfs that I mentioned earlier, you have to be really close to those to be as warm as we are. And so the habitable zone occurs mm -hmm. at much smaller orbital distances. Right. So density and temperature, at least from a working definition perspective, yeah. are things that we look at. Um, so of the 4,500, I think there are many, yeah. many candidates. Well, in there, I right? wouldn't say it's many, many. They're very planet. difficult to detect. Uh, the, the rocky planets, we've yeah. learned, tend to be small compared to the giant compared to the gaseous plants. Uh, and that just makes the signals okay. harder to detect. And the ha at least for sun-like stars, the habitable zone corresponds to a period of a year. And that means you have to monitor these stars yeah. for many years to be really sure that you know what you're talking <laughs> right, about yeah. this planet. Yeah. And all of that together means there are, there are really only maybe on the order of a dozen credible contenders mm. for habitable planets these days. Also, a lot depends on how willing you are to accept a red dwarf as a possible home for life. Uh, people, even, even if you're in the habitable zone of a red dwarf, so you're at the right temperature, it's kind of questionable whether the low, whether you know, most of the light of a red dwarf comes out in the infrared range of the spectrum rather than the optical. And so that makes it hard to drive certain chemical reactions like photosynthesis, for example, would have to be quite different uh, around a red dwarf star. And there are other properties of those stars that make them seemingly less hospitable. Uh, they have much more frequent flares of high energy radiation than the sun does, for example. That seems kind of bad you know, for, for life. Uh, so, you know, if you include the red dwarf stars, we, we have more than just a dozen habitable planets, but there's, it's debatable whether mm -hmm. those should count. Yeah, it's, so um, there are two ways to go, right? If you take Earth as a proxy uh, for a habitable place, then you have to look for Earth-like systems right. around And we have zero stars. of those. There are, there are no places we know <laughs> of where we've those. been able to detect an Earth-sized planet in a one-year orbit around a sun-like star. That remains a goal for the future. Right, right. So in some sense, you know, this is probably too early. Uh, in some sense, this uh, sort of says that, you know, the Fermi paradox um, that, that people talk about, that we haven't found any, any life out there, uh, it's not too far-fetched, uh, far-fetched, right? I mean, it is difficult to get conditions Exactly right. Right. Uh, well, it's important to distinguish what we're able to detect from what's actually out there. We are struggling to detect Earth-like planets because of the limitations in our technology, but we have every reason to think that they're very common, and that's just from extrapolating the results we do have for somewhat larger planets, somewhat closer orbiting planets. If we just extrapolate mildly 
out to the location of, of Earth-like planets and the sizes of Earth-like planets, they should be quite common. In fact, there was a study published just a few days ago announcing the results from a big NASA mission called Kepler that has taken many years to prepare that finds that something on the, on the order of a quarter of sun-like stars have potentially habitable planets by this working definition. A quarter of a sun-like star. So how many sun-like stars do we have in the Milky oh, Way galaxy? Uh, I think there's a total of about 100 billion stars, of which maybe 10% yeah. could, be, could be plausibly called sunlight. Yeah, so oh, it's still absolutely. a huge number in ju in, 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 yeah, in just yeah. one galaxy. And so my, my point of view is galaxies. that the numbers are so, so high, so extreme, that surely yeah. there is nothing unique or special about the sun and the earth. And undoubtedly, there are other planets that resemble the earth almost as closely as we might want if we are willing to look far enough away. Um, and so, you know, it seems the Fermi paradox uh, remains in that sense that if, if life uh, arises commonly and proceeds to advanced civilizations commonly, then there has been enough time since the Big Bang and the formation of our galaxy for those civilizations to have crisscrossed all over the galaxy, visiting everywhere. And so where are they? That's the Fermi paradox. And I don't think that exoplanet science has resolved it. We are finding that there, there appear to be plenty of locations. There are plenty of planets have at least plausible right. properties uh, similar enough to the earth that it makes you wonder. Mm -hmm. We'll take a quick break, uh, George. When we come back, we'll talk about Sounds great. Kepler 78. <laughs> okay. Dr. Sun. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Josh, uh, we have been talking about exoplanets. Uh, that is planets around stars uh, outside the sun and uh, talking about how to detect them, how to measure them, their mass, their composition, their density, their distance from their stars, their orbital um, periods and so on. Uh, and this has been a, an ongoing pursuit uh, by, by many in the last 20 years and we have over 4,500 uh, identified exoplanets out there. Uh, but they all have very, very different characteristics. Uh, and uh, you have a recent review article, uh, Kepler 78 and the ultra short period planets. So this is an exoplanet uh, uh, named Kepler 78b. Um, I guess it was uh, discovered by Kepler uh, Kepler data. Uh, and it's, it's uh, it's about the, about the size of the Earth, but its orbital period is eight, eight and a half hours. So yes. that, that seems really, really uh, fast. You want to talk a bit about that? 
Sure. Uh, maybe I could back up and say that this was one of the biggest surprises of exoplanet science, yeah. that you can have planets that orbit their stars much more closely than any of the planets orbit the sun. And Kepler 78 is, is one of the more extreme examples of that phenomenon. But in fact, the, the Nobel Prize in Physics last year was awarded, at least half of it was awarded to two of the exoplanet pioneers, Michel Mayor and Didier Quiloz, because they discovered a giant planet uh, similar in size to Jupiter. But instead of taking, I don't know, 10 years or so to go around like a giant, giant planets in the solar system, it goes around every few days. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, and what we found is that uh, those are kind of rare, that if you pick a random sun-like star, there's only a maybe a half percent chance that it will have one of these so-called hot Jupiters. But half a percent is not negligible. And the interesting thing is that we don't know how they got there. Mm. We had this very nice theory for planet formation prior to the discovery of exoplanets that predicted you should never find a giant planet so close to the star <laughs> that there's no yeah. physical way it, it could have formed there. Uh, so that's been part of the fun of this field. And we were talking before the break about the search for Earth-like planets, and that is very exciting. But the here and now of this field are the really weird unearth-like planets, and that's what's keeping us busy most of the time. So, so the, the reason we don't expect such big, uh, big planet really close to the star is that there, there isn't enough material. We can't really figure out how much, how that much material will be there. It's kind of a complicated story. Uh, one way, one way of, of viewing it is that the solar system seems neatly organized with the rocky planets on the inside, that is Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. Then there's a gap. And then you have Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, the gas giants. So just from that fact alone, it would make you expect that that's normal, that you should see giant planets beyond a certain distance and rocky planets within a certain distance. And so that's just an empirical fact and a pattern. But then what happened is in the centuries over which people knew these facts, they developed theories that accounted for them. And the modern theory of planet formation came out of those that work. It was not informed at all by exoplanets since we didn't know of any. And that theory explained why it was inevitable that giant planets could only form beyond the distance of Mars. Now, the way the reason is rather complex. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I can try to explain it. Uh, I'm not sure. sure how much detail to go into because clearly there's something wrong with the theory, but let me try anyways. Yeah. So in this theory, the rocky planets form first. And the way that happens is that there's a swirling disk of gas that surrounds a young star. It's basically a vortex of material that is slowly making its way down and crashing onto the star. Uh, and that's an outcome of the collapse of a much larger cloud that eventually led to the formation of the of, of stars. That's how stars are formed. And after they're formed, they're still surrounded by these, these swirling disks that we call protoplanetary disks. And they're mostly hydrogen and helium. Almost all the mass is hydrogen and helium, but at the level of a few percent, 
there are other elements like carbon and iron and nickel and silicon and so forth. And what happens is those heavier elements settle down into a thin layer in the midplane of this disk. And that's where they start to encounter one another. The density gets high enough that these particles of, of silicon and iron and so forth knock into each other and they sometimes stick. And so you build up larger and larger pebbles and rocks and then boulders. And then in the story, they, you, you eventually work your way all the way up to the size of a, of a rocky planet. Uh, there are some parts of that story that are a little hazy. You know, we don't, we don't know. It's a, it's a long way to go to get from a speck of dust to, to an Earth-sized planet. But that is the current thinking. But if, if there is hydrogen and helium there, George, wouldn't it, when it gets to some size, wouldn't it start attracting the, yeah. the gas? So the reason that doesn't happen at first is because the gas particles are lighter and they're moving around faster at a given temperature. And so they're harder to capture uh, gravitationally. They just stay as this extended gas. It's only when you manage to build up a rocky planet that is massive enough to be able to start capturing with its gravity, the surrounding gas. And yeah. that's in this theory, that's a threshold process. That only happens hmm. when you accumulate a planet that's around 10 times the mass of the earth. If you manage, if you manage to build a rocky planet that big, then quite quickly, it sucks up all the surrounding gas and swells up to become mm. a giant planet. And supposedly that is where the giant planets come from. So you form a rocky right. body, and then that becomes the nucleus of what, what will become a giant planet. So, so that's possible, right? So instead of you know, Venus and, um, and Mercury and Earth and Mars, um, maybe it all, you know, sort of jumbled together into a singular planet, that, then that becomes big enough to, to start creating a, a gas well, giant? Well, it's difficult. Even when you have a bunch of planets and you let them collide in the, in the inner solar system, it's difficult to get up to 10 yeah. Earth masses. There just isn't, isn't a whole lot of, okay. there isn't enough material and enough opportunities to, right. to accumulate. But what happens is if you go far out, away from the sun, now it's cold enough for a lot of common molecules like water and methane and ammonia to exist in their frozen forms instead of gaseous form. And so you have a lot more solid material out there than you do close to the sun. And that means it's easier to grow a larger solid body. So that's the way this theory works, is if you're beyond the so-called snow line, that is where you're far enough from the sun that water would exist is in solid form, then you have more snow that you can pack onto one of these growing planets. And it's easier to achieve that critical mass of 10 Earth masses. And then you get promoted and become a giant planet. So that's how this theory explains why the giant planets do exist and should only exist in the far reaches of the solar system. Right, right. Okay. And so, so that is the issue when we see these hard Jupiters, which are not rare, right? It's, no. it's, it's frequent enough to challenge the that's conventional right. theory. Yeah. They're, they're rare, but they're not complete freaks. You know, the, the, the galaxy still has many millions of them. Um, right, so clearly there's something wrong with this theory or something missing. And the way theorists have reacted is interesting. They, they have not said, let's tear up this theory and start fresh. 
the reaction has been more like, well, everything was correct, what we said before. It's just that we didn't really think about what might happen after the giant planet forms. And there are a lot of things that could happen. For example, maybe you form two or three giant planets, but they're close to each other. And over billions of years, they have close encounters with one another. And that can cause them to have, to one planet might get ejected and the other planet might take on a highly misshapen orbit compared to its original circular orbit that takes it very close to the star. And so that's just one example of think other chapters to be added to the story that might cause a planet to take up a smaller orbit. So some sort of migration process. So they, they, they formed out there, but ultimately it migrated toward the star, perhaps uh, as an after effect of an ejection process. But whatever the process is, the, the theory sort of remains in the, in, the, in the sense that they are not formed close to the star, uh, but arguing that they are getting closer to the star for, because of some That's other right. process. That's right. They add on a chapter at the end of the story to bring the planet close to the star. Right. And when we find them, these hot Jupiters, um, they don't they don't look normal, right? In the sense that, you know, it's not a very, very, uh, very stable orbit. Um, there are other characteristics that seem to indicate that um, there's something unusual that went on. Well, the main right? thing is they're hot. <laughs> we, we should, that's the main way in which they're <laughs> definitely different from, from Jupiter. Their, their temperatures yeah. are measured in thousands of degrees as opposed to Jupiter, which is uh, several hundred degrees centigrade below zero, I think. That is just the proximity yeah, to the star it's though, heated. right? Um, it's roasted yeah. on one side uh, by the star. Yeah. Uh, their orbits turn out to be pretty stable for the most part. That is, we don't know how they got there, but at the moment, in most cases, there's nothing that would cause it to be destroyed. So they can in, happily orbit the star so in such close proximity for billions more years. There are there are at least one exception though. There's a hot Jupiter called WASP 12, and it is one of the closest yeah. of the hot Jupiters, one of the hottest of the hot. And we have seen that its orbital distance is very slowly shrinking. And that's because we can it's a transiting planet. And we can every time the planet comes around and makes a transit, we time it. And the interval between the transits is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. I think it's by something like tens of milliseconds uh, per year. So it's a, it's a tiny change, but measurable. And what that means is that in a few million years, if this continues, the planet will fall onto the star and be destroyed. Right. So, um, so going back to the 4,500, George, so given uh, i know that you do a lot of research in this area so let me ask you in in conclusion um you know if you look forward five ten years um technology is improving quite a bit um we i'm sure we're going to see a lot more than 4500 in five ten years um there, there are two major questions right one is one is about life which which may not be solved uh, for for a long time and the other is about planetary formation and, and the theories around that. Do you anticipate 
those planetary formation theories to be uh, s- sort of redone yeah. uh, based on it's the already happening. Uh, the, the whole theory of yeah. planet formation has, has attracted so much more attention and is so much more exciting than it used to be and is drawing in a lot of our young, uh, most intelligent theorists because of all of the puzzles that the new exoplanet discoveries have presented. Not just the close-in planets, but there are some other really weird systems too. There are planets that orbit two stars at once. So there are like Tatooine, you know, where you have a, a double sunset if you're standing on the surface of such a planet. There are planets where there are two planets that almost share the same orbit. They're extremely close to each other. And we don't know how that happened. It seems like a very delicate arrangement. There are planets that are revolving around the star backwards compared to the way the star is rotating. Uh, So that's also very strange. The sun is not like that at all. (laughs) So so yeah, planet formation is already being revised. And as we continue developing the ability to measure smaller planets, wider orbiting planets, and planets around a variety of different kinds of stars, then we will simply have a lot more data a lot more range in our measurements to be able to understand what happened, how these planets came to be. Yeah, I, I guess one complication is you need to know the history of the system, right? So, you know, there could be a visitor of some sort into that system and it could completely yes. tear that apart and create configurations that are not, uh, that are not evolved from, from the initial aspects right so we can't really predict that or speculate on that unless you know the The historical questions are always the hardest ones we can make very precise measurements of what's going on right now but to deduce what must have happened billions of years ago well it's like paleontology you know our, our clues are fragmentary there's no way to be sure however in this case we're actually in a better situation than paleontology paleontologists no matter how hard they look cannot find a living dinosaur they but if we look hard, we can find very young stars and observe them with our telescopes. So we can find stars that are still surrounded by these protoplanetary disks. And we can measure their properties and right. confirm that they're mostly hydrogen and helium gas with a little bit of heavy elements. We can measure the thickness of these disks. And in some cases, we even see features in these disks that could be produced by new forming planets. That is, we see ripples in the disks or gaps in these disks that might be the locations of newly formed planets. Yeah, I want to ask you one more question, Josh. Um, what is your view on, there's a lot of talk around Planet ah. Nine. Yeah. What, what is, oh gosh, I really hope it exists. <laughs> so yeah. Planet Nine is this uh, wonderful <laughs> hypothesis that there is an undiscovered, relatively large planet lurking in the outer reaches of our solar system. So it's not an exoplanet. It's, a, it's an endoplanet, if you want to call it. It's, a, it's one of ours. <laughs> right. And it would be beyond, well beyond the orbits of even Pluto and Neptune. And the reason we have mm. the, these, the reason why this hypothesis was proposed is that Pluto is one of a lot of objects that are far out there called Kuiper Belt objects. These tiny little asteroid-like objects that seem to be left over 
from the protoplanetary disk that never really got it together to form planets. Um, and there are patterns in the orbits of some of those Kuiper Belt objects. There's a, there's a small subset that have orbits that are unusually wide and that are also aligned with each other. So the, the orbits are not circles, they're ellipses. And the ellipses tend to be aligned more often than you would think by chance. And you could just say, well, that's weird. I don't know. That just could be a fluke. But what uh, Mike Brown and Constantine Batigan of Caltech have proposed is that it's actually because there is a distant planet nine. That's 10 times the mass of the Earth and is orbiting at hundreds of times farther out than the Earth. And what they have shown theoretically is that the gravity from such a planet could organize the Kuiper Belt objects into the pattern that we see. Right, right. It it is um, it is really way out there, right? Three hundred. Uh, that's right. That's, and that's why it might have been yeah. undetected until now. It it'll be very cold, very dark, and hard to spot. Yeah. Will um, I guess none of the techniques that we described. Uh, would be useful in this. Yeah, it sounds crazy that we can detect a 10 Earth mass planet around another star, <laughs> not in our own solar system. Yeah. Um, and that's because, yeah, we don't have the anchor. We don't have the way in that we do with exoplanets. We, we, don't, we can't measure the Doppler shift of anything and, and detect this planet. Um, the way it will be detected right. is, is the old-fashioned way of just searching the sky with wide-field hmm. cameras looking for any faint yeah. little dots that are moving the way planets should move and not stars. That's how Pluto was detected. That's yeah. how Neptune was detected. And there are astronomers at the moment who are doing the same thing, trying to seek evidence for planet nine. You see, the problem with this theory, this hypothesis, is it tells you the mass of the planet, it tells you the orbital distance, but it doesn't tell you where to point your telescope. It doesn't, it doesn't say exactly where on the sky it should appear. And so you have to do a lot of searching. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's going around. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, this is one of those situations that perspective actually helps you a lot, right? So when you look to another, another solar, another system or another galaxy, you have a much better perspective than looking yeah, out from, from the world. It's a good way to view the entire <laughs> field as of exoplanets. It's, it's helping us gain perspective on our own home. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this is some great, Josh. Uh, Pleasure. So Always happy to talk about exoplanets. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> thanks so bye. much. Okay, bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.